According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here this morning for the purpose of growth, so let's get started by turning in our Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Gospel of Luke chapter 10. We are in episode number seven in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus, the uh, service of the 70 from Luke 10 verses one through 24, about the first half of the chapter. Uh, There's other good things coming up here in the chapter, including the Good Samaritan parable, the uh, story of uh, Martha and Mary, a very famous episode there and uh, and so forth. Actually, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for quite some time, as we pointed out before this episode started. Uh, a number of these episodes, uh, including the Good Samaritan, Mary and Martha, another lesson on prayer. We're going to go from chapter 10 to 11 to 12 to 13. We've got a big uh, section of Luke that uh, that we'll be dealing with. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble before the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for this opportunity for study, this opportunity for blessing. We thank you that this day has already featured two prayer meetings and the uh, abundant blessings that are poured out as we assemble together in our priesthood function, as we uh, approach the throne of grace boldly to obtain grace and find mercy to help in time of need. Father, we just rejoice over the blessings you pour forth on us, the ones we realize in time day by day, and the ones that we uh, ascertain by faith, the uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, we thank you for the, uh, the message, particularly here in Luke, that uh, identifies the 70 disciples and their role in going forth. I pray we might glean the principles we need to learn from, that we might make application ourselves, because we too are uh, we're sent ones. We've been sent into this world of darkness to proclaim the uh, light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be diligent in that work assignment and that we might learn from passages such as this one as we anticipate the conflict for what it is. So, Father, we thank you again and we uh, commit to you now this time of teaching. Guide us in the truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We left off a week ago in the midst of main point three. There were five principles we're going to get out of this particular chapter. We observed the similarities and differences between chapter 9 and chapter 10. In chapter 9, he sends forth 12 disciples two by two. And in chapter 10, he sends forth 72 two by two. There is a text question there, whether it's 70 or 72. I think 72 is a better, uh, has a better weight behind its evidence uh, in any event. It's either 70 or 72, when he sends forth this group, um, the instructions are quite similar. And yet the differences were noteworthy enough to uh, identify, uh, in particular, the both Jewish and Gentile audiences that these uh, 35 pairs or 36 pairs of disciples were expected to uh, to be dealing with. Now I'm going to pass by a lot of these subpoints so I can get to the main point, too. The 72 are to deliver the Lord's woe messages, which he first taught his disciples during the Galilean ministry. And when you relate this back to the parallel text in Matthew 11:21 through 23, they're parallel in that they address 
uh, Capernaum and, and Chorazin and Bethsaida. They address the present day cities that failed to reply in terms of faith. They also reference back to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of uh, history which were uh, destroyed by God's wrath, on the, again, on the basis of unrepentance. And uh, the similarities, by the way, don't end there either. They also have elements, um, by the way, that come up if um, in terms of, if I can spot this here real quickly, the, um, oh, all right, stand by on that. That's not where I wanted to take this anyway. Okay. Anyway, this was what we looked at last week and the week before under point two, that uh, these were the woe messages. These were not the happy messages. These were messages of judgment and judgment coming as a consequence of not repenting, not being humbled by the, the teaching, not responding on a faith basis. Point being, they could have but did not. And that's what's emphasized here. Uh, last week, we also spotted the what if language, that if that very important if in verse 13, if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented. And a lot of the language of if and would have um, is, is very human. It's, it's something we can relate to because every single one of us has regrets, things in the past that we wonder, well, what if, if uh, better choices had been made, what might those consequences have been, see? And uh, when we go through this exercise on a human basis, we're, of course, limited because uh, we don't know what the consequences would have been. We know what the concept we would like the consequences to have been. We have our, our wishful thinking and our our dream world about, oh, how much better things would be. Uh, but we don't know. The, the truth is, is we don't know the what ifs uh, as far as that goes. But God does. And when the Lord Jesus Christ delivers an if, second class condition, not true, but if it had been true, then this would have been the result. That's not just wishful thinking and from the perspective of humanity. That actually is a reflection of God's uh, recognition of all the uh, alternate plans, all of the uh, potentialities that result on the basis of the exercise of human volition. And so we can accept that, not only from the truthfulness of the Lord's statements, but also in terms of the inspiration of Scripture and it's being recorded here for our edification. God knows every what-if that we're going to face. And He knows the what-ifs that result from our right decisions, and He also knows the what-ifs that result from our wrong decisions. And that becomes an important study. So if you missed that last week, I would encourage you to... Uh, to review that and then go beyond that back to Galilean ministry number 21 where we had woes upon the privilege and review those audio files as well because we went into uh, a greater development on the uh, potentialities that God selects from when he charted out his plan from Alpha to Omega. And that's, uh, that's where we identify the bottom line sovereignty of God from Alpha to Omega that never compromises uh, at all becomes important for us. I think there's a flaw in, in people's understanding of sovereignty that somehow thinks that volition is tying God's hands. And studies like this are of the sort that it helps us to, to, uh, to handle that. All right, I'll go past the other subpoints and focus in where we are today at point three. The 72, or the 70 if you prefer, these disciples, they missed the point for their victories over the demons. When they come back, 
And for whatever length of time this ministry was supposed to be, the point is, is that they returned. They returned as a collective group. They returned in their totality and had a report to make. And uh, it's interesting because when he sends them out, he sends them to places uh, where he himself was going to come. And uh, I might have hinted at this a couple weeks back. Well, when was he going to come? Was he going to come before the cross? Was he going to come um, before the crown? Is he going to come uh, before his inauguration? When is he going to come? See, because he sends them out. He says he's coming. And then they all come back after whatever period of time is left unstated here. So the 70 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting statement that's made in verse 18 when he said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And we are left, and, and I'm comfortable with it, I hope you are as well, we are left not knowing what time frame he's referencing when he says this. We don't know if he was referencing past, present, or future. And we don't know if uh, even the time of his viewing was past or present, as it were. So let's, uh, let's get right back into it where we left it off. First of all, there's a difference here. They don't find out about their authority over demons until they come back. Whereas when he sent forth his disciples, you'll note at the beginning of chapter 9, he tells them up front. He, got, he calls the twelve together, Luke 9, 1, gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases, and he sent them out. And so they were given the authority over demons, and then they were sent out. In the case of the 70, they were sent out. And only then did they find out, hey, look what we can do. And they came back rejoicing over the uh, empowerment over demons. Notice, they don't come back with any kind of excitement over uh, response to their messages, over positive volition, over, I mean, he told them that the harvest was plentiful. They don't reference the harvest. They don't reference, Lord, you were right, the harvest is plentiful. We, uh, we've had these uh, resp- the positive volition, faith responses. We've had uh, people humbling themselves. We've had response to the gospel. None of that. They come back excited that, uh, that they have power over demons. And so they have missed the point. We saw under point A that the twelve, those were the twelve apostles, they were explicitly given authority over demons. They were told that up front. As a matter of fact, it was necessary for them to be told that because they are the frontline troops in the angelic conflict. The apostles had representative authority of Jesus Christ. They came under direct, immediate, satanic attack. You know, I don't presume we, we we're fully engaged in the angelic conflict today, but I don't presume that we're coming to Satan's personal attention. All right. We've got some demonic uh, fallen angel bureaucrat that's eight, nine, ten levels deep in terms of, uh, you know, a, a fallen angel or a demon that reports to a fallen angel who reports to another fallen angel. And finally you get around to a fallen angelic prince who finally reports to somebody who reports to Satan. All right. That's how that's how. Uh, Minimal, we can view things like this. All right, so the 12 were explicitly given authority over demons. The 70, this is a contrast, they discovered their empowerment before the Lord spelled it out. So they learned on the job and then came back and Jesus said, oh yes, forgot to tell you. By the way, you're right, you do have such authority. All right, and just the way in which 
uh, they discovered it and he failed to mention it shows that it wasn't a high priority in his mind that they needed to be uh, aware of it, engaged in it, involved in it. That was not their realm. It was the realm of the Twelve to be battling those forces of darkness. The Seventy were sent to deliver messages. And uh, the, uh, the power they had over serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy, nothing will injure you, was meant as a protective uh, benefit to them, a, a hedge of protection around them, as it were. Uh, when uh, more so than uh, as a defensive measure rather than simply a, a uh, offensive power or authority. They, they certainly weren't given the apostolic authority. We can, we can maybe leave it at that. So this was quite a difference. And to me, that when the Lord failed to bring it up and then only brought it up after they discovered it and made a big deal out of it, I think that's a significant uh, uh, element here of Luke chapter 10. Now, When he says he was watching Satan fall, this is what we want to focus on today. Jesus Christ observed Satan falling from heaven in a context related to the mission of the 72. The context is in relationship to the mission of the 72. And this is important to realize because there's more at work besides these 72 disciples in 32 A.D. traveling around uh, Israel under the uh, time of the Roman Empire. Understand this. They are proclaiming the kingdom. They are proclaiming um, him. And uh, they are to either be accepted or to be rejected. You'll note, though, that it is a kingdom emphasis when he says in verse 9, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Uh, Then you spot it again in verse 11, uh, where you wipe off the dust of your feet. The kingdom of God has come near. And you see that we have a kingdom emphasis here in this chapter. So there's more at work than just simply these guys in 32 A.D. This is a foreshadowing of what's to come in the tribulational reign. This is, what, this is in the tribulation of Israel anticipating the coming of the kingdom. And once again, the kingdom of heaven will be at hand. Uh, I'm talking about, of course, the second advent of Jesus Christ at that point. So when he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning... It's not entirely clear which reference he's talking about. So let's look at them. First of all, was this a vision of the past? Was he watching, with his prophetic sight, was he watching Satan's original fall? Ezekiel 28, 16. This is not my conclusion or my thought on the passage, but at least it must be considered when you evaluate it. Because when he says, I was watching, he didn't say when he was watching. See, I could stand up here today and tell you, I was watching a football game. And you'd say, okay, when were you watching it? (laughs) Right? Was there a game last night? I don't think there was a game last night. Couldn't have been last night. Was it this morning? Was it over the weekend? When were you watching it? See, well, my statement didn't tell you, did it? Um, Neither does his statement here. So let's turn back to Ezekiel 28 and take a look at this. This was Satan's original fall. Uh, I don't believe it's what he had in view in Luke 10 because his vision in Luke 10 is consistent with the, it's in a context related to the mission of the 72. And Satan's original fall does not match that context. But still, it's worth looking at and reminding ourselves of the multiple falls that Satan has had and will have 
in uh, through the course of his career. So in Ezekiel 28, this is the lamentation over the king of Tyre and uh, the, uh, the, the great sadness of this text. What a depressing text because you have the glories of how he was created. Seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, starting with verse 12. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was recovering. I mean, Satan was the most beautiful of all created beings. And if you think about how, uh, uh, you know, birds have feathers and fish have scales and, and animals have fur and, and um, all of the, the aspects of God's creation and the way he designs them in their uh, beauty, there was nothing that could touch this. Uh, what, what animal in the earthly realm had uh, precious stones for his covering? The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, turquoise, emerald, gold. You know, if this was an earthly animal, I think it'd be hunted to extinction in pretty short order. They would, uh, they would want to, uh, you know, if not kill them, at least some, find some way to, to harvest their uh, skin like shearing sheep wool once a year or something. If, uh, if this was a natural animal that could produce such stones as their covering. Well, this was the dragon. This was the dragon in his glory before his fall. And, uh, and so there it is. Uh, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets. Uh, right here in description of the dragon. Was in you on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. You were the Christ cherub. The term there is Messiah. The Mashiach cherub who covers. And I placed you there. The creation and placement of angels is what begins the stewardship of angels. And uh, Satan was a created character. Notice on the day you were created, no human being can, uh, other than Adam and Eve can make that statement, but angels were created. Human beings since uh, Cain and Abel have been born, not created. But this, uh, this being that's being rebuked here was a created being who was sinless first and then fell. All right, important distinction. We were born sinners and then became righteous at the point of faith in Jesus Christ. And so I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. And here we see uh, as the Messiah cherub, we find uh, kingly function, priestly function, prophetic function. I think he occupied all three offices of prophet, priest, and king in the angelic stewardship. He was a type of Christ in, uh, before his rebellion and before his fall. Blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. It began internally. It began as a standard of righteousness contrary to God the Father's standard of righteousness. And anything contrary to the Father's standard is unrighteousness. And that's what had happened here. The exercise of his volition in contrary manner to the Father's plan. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane. So here is the first of the falls. The first satanic fall in verse 16. I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Cast down and destroyed. At this point, the dragon receives scales in exchange for his gems. And when he wants to appear as an angel of light, he has to disguise himself because his present uh, condition is far from the glory he once had. All right. So this is uh, the vision of the past, Satan's original 
fall. Now, when he says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning, we have to consider what's the context for this? What's the time frame for this? Does this relate to Satan's original fall? Now, you'll notice in Ezekiel, he was thrown from the mountain of God, the holy mountain of God. And that's an important terminology. It references the place of God's holiness. It references the temple. Satan, it does not, by the way, ban him from God's judicial court. That's an important consideration because even after this fall, he still has privileges to access God's judicial court. You see that in Job chapter 1 and again in Job chapter 2 where uh, the sons of God come to report to God's judicial court and Satan also appeared among them, we're told. So simply being cast off of the temple uh, mount did not restrict him from his access to God's judicial court that will come later or was jesus christ observing a vision of the present was he observing a fall of satan contemporaneous with his own incarnation ministry with uh, contemporaneous with his own earthly life in 32 a.d ultimately 33 a.d when he goes to the cross i call this the crucifixional fall in colossians 2:15, we find out we find out that Jesus Christ accomplished a tremendous work in the angelic conflict while he was hanging on the cross and shortly thereafter. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. I want you to notice this. Because if this is what's in view when Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning, it's an interesting Statement. It's an interesting representation of what was happening even while the 72 were proclaiming the kingdom. See, I believe the reason why they were highlighting their uh, victory over the demons is that they were not reaping much of a harvest. They were not reaping a response to their message that Jesus Christ is within six months of the, of the cross and public opinion is against him at this point. And you must, you might wonder what were these 72 thinking when Jesus says, hey, the, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And so they run out there all excited and they're not getting much response, if any. And so they come back and now they're kind of, you wonder, were they embarrassed? They couldn't talk about the, you know, the number of professions of faith. They couldn't talk about the great responses. Uh, the only thing they could really say was, hey, you know what? We, uh, we, we kicked some demons around, <laughs> right? Makes you wonder, because again, the full harvest language is, I believe, looking forward to the role of the 144,000, where that harvest is going to be beyond anything even des uh, describable, where the, the myriads of those redeemed come from every tribe and tongue and people and language so great that they cannot be counted. So, um, like I say, there's so much in this episode that points ahead to the tribulational fulfillment. Uh, I think there's more questions than answers in, in some regards. All right, but what happened on the cross? We have this description in Colossians chapter 2, and it's a long sentence, but let's just simply pick up with the fact of where we are. In verse 10, in him that's in Christ, you have been made complete. All right, so raise your hand, that's you. Every, every one of us here, born again, church age believers in the church age, we are, in verse 10, made complete in Christ. See, if you're not in Christ, you're not complete. You're separated from the Father and you are, uh, you are as, 
as incomplete as Adam was without Eve, all right? But in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised. And this has nothing to do with uh, the uh, earthly circumcision of an eight-year-old male infant. This is a spiritual circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So here is a wonderful description of our positional truth. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, you were there because God the Father baptized you, the Holy Spirit baptized you into Christ. You identify with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. When Jesus Christ was laid in the grave, you were laid in the grave. And when Jesus Christ was raised in the glory of the Father, you were raised in the glory of the Father. So having been buried with him in baptism. You ever been buried? Right? Spiritually, yes, through identification with Christ. Physically, Probably not. I wouldn't expect that anyone here has ever been buried, right? Uh, that's kind of creepy. You know, we uh, we did play around with some body bags once upon a time when we were in Desert Storm. They shipped our unit over there. We had 140 soldiers in the unit, and they shipped over 140 body bags, which we thought, well, that's encouraging. I guess if if we all get wiped out, then someone will come along and bury us, you know. And anyway, we were kind of toying around and a little bit morbid. We said, I wonder what it's like inside one of these things. And uh, so we took turns and, <laughs> you know, there's no zipper on the inside of those things either. Once you're, once you're uh, in the body bag, you're kind of at the mercy of your buddies to, to let you back out again. And then it's anyway, um, <laughs> we were dead and fortunately we were crucified, buried, but you also notice we were raised up, raised up with him through faith. See, the moment of your salvation identifies, yes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit where we are identified with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, notice, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's before the circumcision took place. Notice, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, See, there were decrees against us. We were condemned beings. We were born in that condemned estate. Canceled it out. Thank goodness. Consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's what I love. That's why I know that when I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, there is nothing that's going to be charged against me because anything that could be charged against me was nailed to that cross. What else did he do? This so important verse here in verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. See, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross with the focus on humanity was redemptive. With the focus on the angelic realm, notice there was an effect there as well. And that's what's highlighted here in verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him and uh, some would say that the disarming was the cross and the triumph was the preaching in in Sheol and they've done different things with the triumph but uh, whatever you choose to do with the triumph the the reality is that the disarming was accomplished on the cross of Calvary and so you could consider that as a fall in a sense 
what I've titled Satan's crucifixional fall, where the tactical victory in the angelic conflict was secured. Is this what the Lord was viewing when he said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning? And you could imagine, because the 72, let's say, are out there in 36 pairs going to all these cities, and he is remaining where he is with his 12 and whatever they're doing, teaching Bible class, praying, whatever they're doing. And while this is going on, he is observing. This is if you take the I was watching as a contemporaneous activity with the the 72 going out there. So I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It's an interesting thing to consider that while the, the 72 are out there going to all these cities and going to these villages and doing these things and not being listened to, Jesus Christ, far from getting discouraged, far from being disappointed that they're not accomplishing much, they're not bearing any fruit, he is becoming convinced that he's going to the cross and that the work of redemption and the work of satanic disarmament is upon him. That it is, this is the season, this is the time. That he has uh, lived through his final Passover and the next Passover that arrives is his day to sacrifice himself. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. All right. Or so that we've considered possibly that he was watching the past fall or possibly he was watching a present fall, a, cont- a contemporaneous fall with the ministry of the 72 or. Was he, in fact, looking forward to a vision of the future? Was he watching Satan's eschatological fall, his, shall we call it, tribulational fall, when he is thrown down at the midway point of the tribulation? Halfway through the seven years, Satan is cast down. And that's why the second half, the three and a half years of the second half of the tribulation, is called the Great Tribulation, all right? Revelation chapter 12. Is this what Jesus was seeing? Because, again, He was watching the 72 go forth, preaching the kingdom of heaven at hand, but also knowing that he's going to the cross and and what they are is a foreshadowing of the 144,000 that that will do the identical thing going through the land of Israel, going worldwide even during the uh, tribulation of Israel. All right. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. So you see what we've done with this. The statement he says, I was watching Satan fall, does not give us a time component. It does not tell us when he was watching and even uh, the distinction between when he was watching and when Satan was falling. See, uh, the other day I was watching uh, some uh, presidential speeches of, of President Ronald Reagan. Okay, well, that was last week. I was watching it, but it was 25 years ago when he was given it. So we understand that if we if we use a. The language like this or any 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 expression like this where you say I was watching this other activity taking place that they could be widely different in in terms of their time. I might have been watching last week, but it took place 20 years ago. Okay, when Jesus says I was watching. Well, when was that? When was he watching and when were the events he was watching taking place? So there's two open time questions there. When was he watching and when was the fall, the, the fall taking place? So was it a future? We've examined past. 
we've examined present. Let's consider that perhaps he was watching a future fall of the adversary. And so here you will note. Now, this is in a panorama uh, revelation where you have symbols, you have uh, time that passes. You'll note um, a great sign appeared in heaven at the beginning of chapter 12. So it's not a literal vision. It is a symbolic vision that he's watching with signs involved. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet on her head, a crown of 12 stars. This is a, a representation of Israel. When you understand the language of sun and moon with with um, Jacob's dream there, considering his brothers and his parents and the sun, moon, and 12 stars. Very consistent with Genesis, consistent with Israel. She was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. So here's the panorama and here's Israel and here's the Christ about to be born. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. On his head were seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, threw them down to the earth. See, this is where we talk about the angelic rebellion that we read already in Ezekiel 28, that not only did Satan fall at that point, but a third of the created angels went with him. His tail swept them with him. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And think about the attempts of Herod to, to massacre the babies there in, the, in Bethlehem. And what was motivating that? What was behind that? Well, it was the satanic desire to destroy the promised one, the one that God had promised was going to crush his head. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Do you see what happened there in verse 5? That one verse went from the birth to the ascension. You know, forget baptism and ministry and crucifixion and death and resurrection. And it went from birth to ascension. So here we are. We, what's today's lesson number on life of Christ? Lesson number... What is it, Bob? Okay. Whatever it is. It's a 224, all right? All of that just went zip, gone. He was born. He ascended to the Father. <laughs> Okay? So you see the panorama nature of this chapter. It's not unusual for panorama prophecies. And uh, caught up to God on the throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Here is the time period of the tribulation. Now, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. You'll note they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. No longer a place found for them in heaven. So this is now a future fall, an eschatological fall. We, we saw in his past fall that he was thrown down from the temple, but he still has access to the judicial courts. Here, even that is revoked and he's being cast down, completely banned from all heavenly access. You will spot also in this same context here uh, the uh, verse 10 the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down he who accuses them before our God day and night see even after he'd been expelled from the temple the presence of God's holiness he still had access to the courts the uh, the center of God's righteousness see well that's uh, now now even that is getting revoked he could no longer approach the, uh, the Bema and start laying these accusations against the saints. That's done. He, this is a complete heavenly expulsion. 
backing up again, you'll notice there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, not even the judicial courts that God had allowed them in his long suffering. He had allowed them continued access to the judicial courts, even though they were banned from the temple, the heavenly temple. So the great dragon was thrown down. That's one title for him. The serpent of old. That's another who is called the devil. There's a third and Satan. There's a four. Just in case you're not sure who this is we're talking about. We'll uh, describe him in four different terms. The great dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. Who deceives the whole world. Do you think our world is being prepared for this? You better believe this world is being prepared for this. This world is craving for an answer. Hmm. He was thrown down to the earth. His angels thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So this is why I don't believe Satan's down here paying attention to you and I. He spends most of his time up there day and night. He's got morning accusations, evening accusations. Um, Plus, we're so insignificant anyway, we wouldn't merit his direct attention. Who do we think we are? And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony. They did not love their life, even when faced with death. The tribulational martyrs are going to face it and they're going to have victory. Very important to spot this here in verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, heavenly dwellers. I think this also, by the way, helps us to pinpoint the pre-tribulational rapture of the church because uh, by the time this event takes place, there will be heaven dwellers. And it will be heaven dwellers who will be able to initiate their rejoicing. I believe part of why he's thrown out is for the uh, privacy and the intimacy of the wedding supper of the Lamb, our presentation to the Father, our our nuptials with Jesus Christ, and the feasting that uh, is going to be up there uninterrupted by these goofy and baseless accusations. And the Father is going to expel Satan and all the fallen angels. He's going to close the doors to his court, uh, the judicial court, closed for business now, and uh, in the wedding supper mode of celebration on behalf of his Son. Woe to the earth. So heaven dwellers are rejoicing. Earth dwellers, not so much. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. The clock is ticking. The the tribulation's already halfway over. And he has to do what he can do in the time remaining to exterminate the Jewish race, or he's done. So when the dragon saw he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child persecuted the woman this is still yet future don't there's books out there that try to tell you oh this is this is fulfilled already and blah 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 the two wings of the great eagle that's supposed to represent uh you know the united states american air force or you know kind of a thing because you know we have an eagle on our symbol and wings for anyway there are books out there that go into some goofy things there what i want you to see though is that there is a future fall of satan and we've already covered that sufficiently here this morning there is a future fall of satan and it's going to be fun to watch because we're going to get to watch it too we're going to get to watch it from the top as he gets thrown down and then we get to have our time of privacy with our husband and with uh, his father and the the uh, blessings of uh, of what takes place in heaven while hell is uh, unleashed on earth all right, so 
Of all the three considerations, I find the third one to be the one most consistent. In particular, as I come back now to Luke 10, the fall is not a fall from the temple courts. The fall is not a fall from a mountain of holiness. The fall is a fall from heaven like lightning. And so I find this not only in its reference to heaven, but in its context of lightning to be a tribulational application. Remember, in the tribulation is when there's the hellfire and the lightning and the, and the, and the uh, plagues upon the earth. All right. So this is uh, what we look at here. Now, he then tells them, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will injure you. This, too, is a foreshadowing of the tribulation because we've studied it in our Revelation series. The 144,000 have the seal of God on their forehead and they're immune to all the demonic affliction that's going to come upon the world. When uh, the millions of demons, 200 million demons flood this world and start tormenting human beings, they can't touch the 144,000 that have the seal on their forehead, the mark of God on their forehead. They're immune to serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So this was literally spoken to the 72, but it's prophetically applicable to the 144,000. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's the principle that they need to apply. It's the principle you and I need to apply. And here it is under point D. The disciples' motivation for rejoicing... The disciples' motivation for rejoicing should be in what they have received by grace through faith and not in what they can now do by grace through faith. The disciples' motivation for rejoicing should be, ought to be, in what they have received by grace through faith. Like Paul said, determine to know nothing among you about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To day by day just be mindful and aware and thankful and rejoicing that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Not in what they can now do by grace through faith. In other words, the reason to celebrate is what God did on your behalf. What God did for you. Not what you can do for God. They were all impressed. Oh, look what we can do. If you're impressed with what you can do for God, you got it backwards. Be impressed with what God could do for you and what he did for you. And praise him for it and celebrate what he did on your behalf. So do not, that's a prohibition, do not rejoice in this. You know, in, in terms of uh, what we're commanded to rejoice over and not rejoice over, think about what love. Love does not rejoice in unwickedness. Love did, uh, but rejoices in the truth. Think about... You know, the Father glorifies Himself and glorifies the Son when He judges wickedness and evil, when He throws down Satan. Uh, but does His soul take pleasure in that? No. He says He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from the wicked ways and repent. And so even though it produces a glory, it does not produce a delight or a pleasure. And since the Father is not delighting in and rejoicing in the, uh, the uh, exercise of power over demons, uh, we would be wrong to have a rejoicing attitude there contrary to God's attitude. Our, our attitude should be God's attitude. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's 
includes God, right? If he's rejoicing in it, I should rejoice in it. Weep with those who weep. If God's weeping over a circumstance, I need to weep over a circumstance. And so this is a part of having the mind of Christ. All right. So again, point D, the disciples' motivation for rejoicing should be in what they have received by grace through faith, not in what they can now do by grace through faith. Because even if they do have power, it's not that they, it's not in them. And the only thing they can boast about is because, again, it's by grace through faith, all that they do. All right. Fourth thing we want to get into is point is verses 21 through 24. The Lord concluded this episode with a dispensational evaluation. The Lord concluded this episode with a dispensational evaluation. I find this remarkable, particularly uh, from the standpoint of those brothers and sisters of ours who uh, not only are against a dispensational theology, but openly mock it, ridicule it, and find themselves hating a dispensational theology. Which I find interesting because we're supposed to be imitators of Christ and Jesus Christ in this passage is evaluating his circumstances on a dispensational basis. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. This is an evaluation of the Father. This is a recognition of what had not been revealed previously, what had been withheld previously, what was only now starting to be made clear. And it wasn't made clear to the wise and the intelligent. And we'll have to examine... um, the uh, reference there to wise and intelligent. What was he talking about? Who were the wise and the intelligent? And yet they were revealed to infants. Who were the babes? Who were the infants that, uh, that were seeing that? Well, in this context, the infants were the 72. The infants were these disciples, these humble disciples of Jesus Christ, these fishermen and carpenters and workmen and whoever they were, these ordinary folks. They weren't prophets. They weren't priests. They weren't Levites. They weren't scribes. They weren't Pharisees. They were just ordinary folks. And it's a, it's a neat picture of what's happening here. It's a dispensational evaluation. And what he praises the Father for is true. When he speaks it, it becomes even more true for you and I. Because everything he says here is true with respect to the 72 and the ministry here in the age of the incarnation. But it becomes even more vivid in the mystery age of the, of the dispensation of the church. And hopefully that will uh, that will become clear here as well. So you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Now, God is not the author of confusion. He didn't hide in order to be a liar, in order to mislead or to deceive. He he hid for a season, for a time in order to better reveal at a better time to a better uh, constituency what the, the plan was all about. And I hope we understand that in terms of uh, what God hides, what God reveals, what God chooses not to reveal, the uh, secret things of the Lord belong to him. But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. And it's God's wisdom that separates the two, the things that he reveals and the things that he withholds. Those things are his. All right. We couldn't handle them. We, we have no business peering into them. 
there's uh, some interesting commentary that's out there on this aspect and different things like it. Um, the, the Quran actually presents Allah as a deceiver and even celebrates that, that Allah deceives and, um, and even celebrates the fact that, that he does that and, and he kind of takes some delight in doing that. Um, and the, the Muslim apologists that try to justify that uh, will take a concept like this and say, well, you know, your Bible says that God hides things and yet fails to uh, truly present the reality that, yes, God does hide things for his purpose, for his seasons, until the right time for them to be revealed. Uh, he's not deliberately misleading folks so as to cause them to stumble in the issues that, uh, that Allah allegedly does there as well. Okay. Um, a dispensational evaluation. So it is a praise to the Father. First of all, it is under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This accolade is a Holy Spirit-prompted confession. A Holy Spirit-prompted confession. When he rejoiced greatly and said, I praise you, I confess you. I homologeo you. This is one of the uses of confession that has nothing to do with uh, admitting your sin and guilt before the Father in order to be forgiven and restored to fellowship. If, if the only thing we understand confession is, is that, we've got a short-sighted view on confession. Here is a confession. And it's a confession of the Father before the disciples. He'll make another confession before Pontius Pilate. Jesus Christ, who made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. And you and I are to make a confession as well, is as children of light in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. So this is a Holy Spirit-prompted confession by Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father's plan. To the glory of the Father's plan. See, it's a mature faith that's able to glorify the Father's plan by homologeo, saying the same thing as confessing, celebrating the wisdom of what the Father's doing. See, that's what homologeo is, to say the same thing as. And you're able to testify. That's a great plan. What a great plan. See, uh, the plan that included my uh, health test, the plan that included my financial test, the plan that included my marital test or whatever else. So rather than grumble about how it's unfair, why should I have this? Why should I have that? Why are we being persecuted? Why me? Why me? Why me? Let's homologeo and confess with the father and celebrate what a great plan he has. Isn't it wonderful that we get to uh, encounter uh, um rejection by our governmental authorities over us who uh, are turning us down on our site plan for the new building we want to build. All right, Isn't it great how they uh, uh, change the rules against us and only us uh, for our uh, uh, detention pond? See, every other business in Walnut Park has this, bit, this uh, detention pond, but we're not allowed to have that, that detention pond because uh, we're a church and they don't like churches. See, Isn't that great? We can confess the Father's plan. And say, thank you, Father. Now show us what you're really going to do as far as that goes. Anyway, keep that in prayer. We just learned that yesterday, and we'll see what the Father's going to do on that. A confession of the Father's plan. You hid these things from the wise and the intelligent. And remember, who was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty? All right? See, this hidden is not just... I think a lot of folks view this dispensationally and say, well, the prophets didn't have this in view. I think the prophets had this in view. But the angels did not have a lot of this in view. 
Uh, we know from Second <clears throat> Peter, things in which angels long to look. There are things that the Father withholds from angelic uh, awareness until such time as he unfolds them in grace to us. And that's what's being spoken of here. Reveal them to infants. You know, compared to, I don't care how old you are, right? I don't care how old any human being is on the planet today. Mrs. Box is the oldest woman I've ever met, oldest human being I've ever met. She was 106 years old when I met her. And, uh, but she is an infant compared to the fallen angels that are prowling this earth and bringing about uh, their, their, their uh, schemes and their influences and their teachings and so forth. In other words, Father, you've got this amazing plan that's just driving the fallen angels nuts. And you're revealing your wisdom to human beings. These little infants, these babies, see, even if you live to be 100, 110, whatever you live to be, you're going to die a baby as far as the angels are concerned. And even in the millennium, remember that? In the millennium, the one who does not reach 100 shall be thought of as accursed. And, oh, he was so young. <laughs> All right. I think the contrast here between wise and intelligent versus infants is a contrast between the invisible realm, the angelic realm of creation, and the human realm of creation. It goes on in verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal It is all about the glory and the fellowship we have with the Father and with the Son. So this is his accolade. The Father's plan included a hiding, then revealing. Not a permanent hiding, but it was a hiding, then revealing. Personal intimacy with God the Father and God the Son. That's what was hidden. That's now what's revealed. Hidden from the angels, revealed to men. The Father's plan included a hiding, then revealing personal intimacy with God the Father and God the Son. What does it say in First John? Who, who's our fellowship with? Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. First John chapter 1. And you know, uh, what is the spirit of Antichrist? The one who denies the Father and the Son. Oh, there's some amazing doctrine in these, in these passages. He goes on to say, truly, blessed are you, the eyes which see the things you see. You know, Moses and David and Daniel and Jeremiah, they were all looking forward. They were all looking forward. They all died without ever seeing what these guys were able to see. Many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And did Jesus Christ assemble a bunch of prophets, a bunch of kings, a bunch of uh, princes, a bunch of uh, priests? And No, not many mighty are called. He chooses the weak things to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise. He chose fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors and, and, uh, and all the rest. So the Father's plan, uh, what a blessing. Wise and intelligent prophets and kings were passed over in deference to the infant disciples. We've got about four minutes left. There's, I thought we'd have some time for this. I'm glad we do. Um, under point five, 
I want to give you some of the traditions and stories and things of these 72 or 70. Point five. The 72 are ripe for ecclesiastical traditions. Do you like church traditions? There's no shortage of them with respect to these 72. The reason being is... um, You know, when he calls the twelve, like in Matthew 10 or Luke or Mark, uh, in all the gospel accounts, John, every dodecapostologue you have, when he appoints the twelve, they're named. We know who they are. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Simon, all these guys, right? But when he calls the 70, he does not say, now the names of the 72 disciples are these. And we don't have a list. And so, it's quite remarkable, every legend that came up with respect to anybody, it was very common to say, oh, and by the way, he was one of the 70 (laughs) that Jesus sent out. See, and Eusebius even writes on that. He he has an article, if you ever read his uh, uh, ecclesiastical history, Eusebius was the first church historian. He wrote an article in his uh, history of the church. And I should increase the size on this. The disciples of our Savior. The names of the apostles of our Savior are known to everyone from the Gospels. But there exists no catalog of the 70 disciples. So what does he do? Let's go ahead and write one. (laughs) It doesn't exist, so I'll write one. Barnabas, indeed, is said to have been one of them of whom the Acts of the Apostles makes mention in various places, and especially Paul in his epistle to the Galatians. So the one that's the most rumored to have been of of the 70 was Barnabas. They say that Sosthenes also, who wrote to the Corinthians with Paul, we've studied Sosthenes, remember 1 Corinthians, Paul and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church at Corinth. Uh, That's what they say. So you know what they say. In this case, we find out who they are, uh, this is actually the account of Clement in his fifth book of his, uh, oh, how do you ever pronounce this, Hippotypasis, in which he also says that Cephas was one of the 70 disciples. Now, this is where we see some confusion because we know that Cephas is just another name for Peter. Okay, But some of the um, church fathers, and the, the more they were separated from the Jewish culture, and the more they were separated from the Aramaic language and so forth, failed to identify that Cephas was the Aramaic for Peter, and it was the same guy, Simon, son of John, the disciple, the apostle. And so they started to create these legends about Cephas. So that kind of shows you where some of the confusion comes in. So uh, the same authority, Clement, who uh, tells us that Sosthenes was one of the 70, also tells us that Cephas was one of the 70. So you know how reliable is he? And we know that Cephas was really Peter, who was one of the 12, not one of the 70. Um, and fortunately, um, well, that's, uh, Eusebius likewise backs up that confusion when he says Cephas was a man who bore the same name as the apostle Peter and the one concerning whom Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Remember, Eusebius has a vested interest in denying that Peter ever made a mistake. Okay. Peter could not be, oh no, Paul couldn't have resisted Peter to his face. No, 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 no. Peter's our first Pope. (laughs) All right. Remember, who was Eusebius writing for on, on whose behalf? You know, the, the Roman church here. OK. All right. 
in any event. Uh, Matthias, who was numbered with the apostles. Now, I, I, I don't dispute Matthias because of the description in Acts chapter 1 when Matthias and uh, uh, Judas Barsabbas are placed forward. Uh, we're told in Scripture that they had traveled with Jesus from the entirety of baptism to resurrection. So I don't dispute Matthias at all. Matthias also, who was numbered with the apostles in the place of Judas, and the one who was honored by being made a candidate with him, are likewise said to have been deemed worthy of the same calling with the seventy. They also say that Thaddeus was one of them, which uh, is another incorrect identification because Thaddeus was another name for uh, Lebius and Judas, not uh, Iscariot. Concerning whom I shall presently relate an account which has come down to us. And upon examination, you will find that our Savior had more, more than 70 disciples, according to the testimony of Paul, who says that after his resurrection from the dead, he appeared first to Cephas, then to the twelve, after them to above 500 brethren at once, of whom some have fallen asleep, but the majority were still living at the time he wrote. And it goes on. There's more. Um, and then he goes on to relate the story of Thaddeus. And that's kind of a fun story there, but we don't have time today. It's already 11 o'clock. The, uh, so they're, they're ripe um, for ecclesiastical traditions. Clement of Alexandria cites Barnabas as being of the Savity. And if you ever want to read Clement, the citation is there. Eusebius cites Matthias and Judas Barsabbas as being of the Savity. There were other legendary members. John Mark, who traveled with Barnabas and Paul and then left him. And then, you know him, he was supposedly one of the Savity. Parmenas, Prochorus, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Timon. Uh, John the Presbyter, when they try to say, well, there were different Johns, the Apostle John and then a different John that wrote the epistles and so forth, that he was one of the 70. Hermes, Tychicus, Artemis, Agabus, the prophet, all these guys. Basically, anybody that was significant in the book of Acts, uh, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, the, they, they really should have been in the book of Luke. They were, they were included in the Gospels. So we kind of laugh and chuckle at some of that. All right, next week we'll come back, Lord willing, rapture pending, and we have a Good Samaritan story, which is not even a Good Samaritan story. It is a lawyer story. The lawyer is told the Good Samaritan story, and uh, the application was to be made by the lawyer with respect to the doctrine he had been presented. The Samaritan was simply the illustration that the Lord used in speaking to the lawyer. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word. Father, uh, we thank you that the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. The secret things belong to you. Uh, you chose to not give us the names of these 70 guys or 72. That's fine. Father, we want to glean these principles, make our application. And it doesn't matter. It's not important who they were. It's important to learn the lessons that they both learned and failed to learn. Father, we want to not uh, make their mistake. We want to have the victories in uh, every area for which you send us out. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.